I remember several months ago when my wife and the Magnificent Seven <laughs> were out shopping and they drove up to one of the local stores and pulled into the parking lot and, and stopped. And as they were piling out of the van, uh, one of Mama's little helpers reached up to steady themselves and grabbed hold of the rearview mirror. And then much to the shock and horror of my beloved, the whole thing just broke off from the windshield. And there it was left, kind of dangling between heaven and earth above the dashboard. You can imagine the uh, kinds of, well, most gracious exhortations that were coming from the driver's seat and the look of shock and awe on the face of the one who was being exhorted. In any case, a few hours later, I came home uh, to a yard full of children all squealing and simultaneously and incoherently giving me accounts of what had happened. And, of course, I couldn't make out any of that until I worked my way up to the driveway and looked through the driver's side window, and there it was, swinging by a wire that controls the compass and the clock, hanging between dashboard and headliner and... You know, men, what it's like when you see a problem that you know absolutely nothing about how to fix. And you're thinking, you can't leave it like this. Someone will get beat to death by this thing if we just leave it hanging. Well, we did some checking to try to figure out how to fix this thing. And we learned something. There's an easy fix if your, windshield, if your, if your rearview mirror falls off of your windshield, or if in our case it gets jerked off. There's a special kind of glue. It's unusual in that it's extremely powerful. In fact, only a couple of drops of this stuff can hold a rearview mirror and a significant amount of weight uh, in a very, very short period of time. The other thing that makes it unusual is that it comes in two parts, generally. It comes with two vials. And alone, either one of the chemicals in those vials can do very little. But when you mix them together, they make an incredible bond that can hold an enormous amount of weight considering how small a drop you put on your rearview mirror. A thought crossed my mind this week about that story as I was preparing this message. And it occurred to me, wouldn't it be great if we could come up with a kind of a relational bond a relational kind of glue that could hold people together and keep them from breaking apart. You know, the kind of secret recipe that would melt away conflict and heal old wounds and bind people together in an unbreakable union. Well, that would be something, wouldn't it? Think about what we could do if we could bottle something like that. Think about how many families would begin enjoying reconciliation among family members. Think of how many rebellious teenagers would actually come home and begin enjoying conversation with their dads. Think of how many churches would rebuild their reputation in the community and see the glory of God exalted in a public way. Think of how many marriages could be mended. How many divorce lawyers would go out of business if we had something like that. And you know the world looks for it. Uh, Dr. Phil has his own prescription. Of course, Oprah has hers. Um, you can go down talk radio and find any number of people who will tell you how to pull that kind of a 
mixture together. But all of it is weak and for the most part worthless. If you could offer this kind of magic solution in a bottle today, if I could offer it to you before you left this room, how much would you be willing to pay? How much would you be willing to pay? How much would it be worth to you to have the hearts of your children back? How much would it be worth to you to have the hearts, the heart of your wife or your husband back? How much would it be worth to you to see conflict in your church and in your home or in your relationships outside of both back, healed, restored? That'd be great. Or what about this? What if we could offer you something before you leave that promises that stuff will never happen again? At least you would never be the cause. Well, I'm here to tell you that such a solution does exist. But it can't be put into a bottle. And it can't be manufactured in a factory or packaged for sale at Walmart. Rather, it's a mixture of five spiritual ingredients combined together that form a powerful glue that the Bible calls, are you ready? Peace. Peace. Now this morning we want to pick up right where we left off last time in Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we talked about one verse and really just one word. And we looked at it in terms of spiritual habits, holy habits and unholy habits. And how is it that um, we can push out the old and bring in the new? How do we take off the flesh and put on Christ, and I gave you um, eight disciplines for building holy habits in your life. And we had so many people ask for them last week that we went ahead and, and, in fact, I reworked them a little bit to make them a little more usable, and we stuck them in your bulletin. And just keep that in mind this week, because here's what Paul is going to do. We talked about that last week, and now he's going to give us five things. Five things to build into our lives or five ingredients to mix together in our lives and in our church and in our family that will call, that will create this strong bond called peace whose result will be unity. Unity. Now the point of this passage that Matt read for us a few minutes ago is simply this. Be diligent, in one statement, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the most important part of these first three verses. That's Paul's goal. That's God's goal. He wants there to be unity among believers in this mysterious, miraculous thing that Paul calls the church. Now, I've also included some thoughts about the home in this message because you pretty much can't have a church without a home. The church is built of homes, of families that meet together. We are a family of families that meet together for worship and for fellowship. It might be helpful to summarize this whole text in the form of a question and answer. Question, how do we walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called? Answer, by being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the most important thing he wants you to know here. 
There are a lot of ways that you can walk worthy of your calling. A lot of things that you do in private that would be walking worthy of your calling. But there's something here that he has specifically in mind. He's thinking about your relationships to the other people in the church. Because the church is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Now, before we look at the five spiritual ingredients that make the kind of peace that produces true unity, let's make a couple of observations, shall we? Number one, the unity of the Spirit is preserved, not created. Unity of the Spirit is preserved, not created. You see, there are all kinds of books and seminars and resources by the dozen that offer various prescriptions on how to tear down the walls and kind of bring everybody together. For some, unity can be achieved in their minds, in the church. If we just set aside our doctrinal differences, we tear down the wall, we come together for a common cause. If you're familiar with ECT, the Evangelical Catholics Together document, that's what that was about. Ever read Chuck Colson's book, The Body? That's what that was about. How Catholics and Protestants, we're all the church. And there's a major push, a major movement in our day, and has been for many decades, to just... Forget about all of our doctrinal differences and let's just get together for common causes and then we'll be unified. And the world will know that we are Christians by our unity. And they'll be dazzled by that and they'll want to be a part of us. Whether the cause be political or social or moral is really not the issue. The main thing in their minds is just to get everyone together, even People with the remotest claim of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you be Jehovah's Witness who claim to know Christ, or whether you be Mormon who, know, who claim to be uh, a follower of Christ, or a Catholic, or a Protestant, doesn't matter. If you name the name of Jesus, you're in. And that's unity. And whether we're getting together for abortion, or social injustice, or judicial tyranny, or any number of causes, the idea is that if we could just get everyone fighting the same battle, or standing for a common cause, we'd achieve unity. But that's not the kind of unity Paul's speaking about here. Nor is it the kind of unity that Jesus was speaking about in John 17, which we won't have time to look at today. The unity that God wants us to have is not one that he hopes, you know, will someday you people will be able to bring about by your strategizing and your ideas. It's not that kind of unity. It is a unity that he purchased with his blood and gave to us. We don't create it. We already have it in Christ. We merely have to preserve it. And to the degree that we're not enjoying it, to that degree, we are not pursuing it. We are not persevering in the pursuit of it. That's why Paul calls it, by the way, the unity of the Spirit. It is the unity of the Spirit. It is a kind of unity that can be, be produced only as a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those he indwells. It is a Spirit-wrought, miraculous thing because it is intimately tied to and inextricably linked to your salvation and my salvation. And now we are, as Ephesians says all over the place, in Christ we are unified in one man. 
and that is the Lord Jesus. It's a kind of unity that can be only can be produced by the Holy Spirit. And this all reflects back on chapter 2, remember, where Paul talks about the miracle of how God has taken the Jews and the Gentiles who have historically been enemies and even today to a large degree are ethnic enemies of one another and has brought them together out of this deadly conflict, some of them, and brought them into the church by faith, the true seed of Abraham who are Jews by grace through faith are now brought together with Gentiles who are also sons of Abraham by grace through faith. And now the dividing wall of partition has been abolished. The enmity is gone. And now we have this miraculous thing called the church. That's the unity he's referring to. That's the unity. And so the unity is to be preserved. It is to be guarded. It is not something that we create. It is something that we protect. Second observation. The unity of the Spirit is always under attack by sin. It is always under attack by sin. Just as anything that exists on planet Earth is always being pulled downward by gravity. So sin is always trying to pull down or break apart the unity that we have been given by grace through faith. It's of the highest importance that we recognize the fact that, that this unity is always under attack. And that's why Paul says we must be diligent. Be diligent, diligent to preserve this miraculous unity given to us by Christ. Because sin is always on the assault against it. And that means your sin and my sin. Your flesh and my flesh are always wanting to tear down this unity. You see, God's plan, according to chapter 1, verse 10, is to sum up, sum up or reunite all things in heaven and in earth in Christ. The problem is, that our sin is constantly at work trying to sabotage that goal. Now, in the end, our flesh can do nothing to sabotage the ultimate goal. But in the present, our flesh can do an awful lot to sever your unity with another brother or sister in Christ. Flesh is always on the, ta- the attack. People are always putting their own desires above everyone else's, their own needs above their neighbors, their own opinions above those of their brothers. By nature, we all tend to be self-seeking, self-exalting, self-promoting, and self-defending. And if we don't discipline ourselves to counteract those tendencies, then serious disunity happens in the flock. It occurs in our marriages. It occurs in our families. It occurs in our churches and in every other sphere of human relationship. That's why you can't be a deacon or an elder, according to Paul, in the local church unless you meet certain qualifications. You cannot be pugnacious. Ready to fight. You cannot be self-willed. Why? Because unity is a serious, serious thing in the mind of God. A serious thing. And so what can we do to counteract these destructive tendencies? These sinful habits of communication, thought, 
and action that we talked about last time. These sinful inclinations that tend to leverage apart relationships that would otherwise be unified in Christ. What can we do? What can we do? Well, Paul tells us what we can do. If we have an eye to see and an ear to hear and a heart that is docile before the Holy Spirit to change. Paul gives us five things, five powerful ingredients that produce the strong bond of peace that is the glue of unity. And so what are those five things? You ready? Here we go. I've got 25 minutes. I was telling my boys, my wife's on her back. She's having a little back problem right now. And she's going to come and pick up the children uh, so I can stay for lunch and, and fellowship with you all. I said, now... Josh, make sure, 12.15, be out there in the parking lot with the twins. Chris is going to come pick them up. And he said, okay, Dad, I'll do it. I said, not, not one minute late. He said, okay, Dad, I'll do, my, I'll do my part. And we drove a little bit, and he said, but you know you've got to do your part. You've got to have us out of here by 12.15. So here we go. You know, you get these teenagers who are pretty sharp, you know, and you've got to be on your toes all the time. Ingredient number one. You ready? This one's implicit, not explicit, but I think you'll see it. Ingredient number one, truth. Truth. Saturate your soul with the truth. You want to pursue peace for the sake of unity in your home and in your church and in wherever you are interacting with other people? Truth, ingredient number one. If you skip this one, forget it. Just forget it. Sign up to be on the Oprah show. She'll give you all kinds of prescription without truth. It is of the highest importance that we recognize the fact that this unity that Paul speaks of is inextricably connected to the truths that he has just invested three chapters expounding. You cannot jump into chapter 4 and say, okay, now I have to be humble and be gracious and meek and all these other things. Okay, I'm going to do that. You can't do that without a handle on chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is my 24th message in the book of Ephesians. And I bet I have said this 25 times, but I will say it again. We must not begin our study of Ephesians in chapter 4. To do so is to violate the context, to ignore the importance of the very first word of this chapter, which is, therefore. What is that therefore? Well, it points backward to the three chapters of glorious truth. You must saturate your soul in the truth. Or it's hopeless. It's hopeless. What do you do when you find yourself in conflict with a brother or sister? If you sit around with your fleshly friends and your Jeremiah 17, 9 hearts and come up with a strategy on how to bring peace, you're going to fail miserably. There is truth that is absolutely the bedrock of all relationships if you ignore those truths, if you ignore those truths, you are not living 
in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. If you just jump right into application and moralization and forget the doctrine, you are not living in a way that is worthy, that balances out with the calling with which you have been called. We cannot live, we cannot have true unity without some apprehension and some acceptance of these great doctrines. Jesus said, remember, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The Holy Spirit's job is not to exalt the Holy Spirit. It is never to exalt the Holy Spirit. You never find anywhere in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is exalting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always exalting Jesus, always exalting the gospel, always leading us into truth. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. The Holy Spirit's job is to point us to Christ and to lead us into all truth. And then you will know the truth. I will send the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth, Jesus said. You will know the truth and the truth will do what? Set you free. It will set you free. The fool builds his house on sand and his marriage upon empty wishes. But the wise man builds his house on the rock and his marriage on the truth of Scripture. That's why chapter 5, when Paul tells husbands to follow Christ's example, he says, do it by cleansing your wives by the washing of water with what? The Word. The Word. The Word of God is truth. And why is, why is this important for us? Because what is true of marriage is true also in the church. A church that is built on the conclusions of the latest opinion poll or the most recent conclusions of predominant church growth theorists or the cleverness of the pastor is built on sand. We got an article this week in the mail, a little card actually, that led us to an article on the web called Why Easter Outreach No Longer Works. I thought, well, that's intriguing. I'll check it out. Got on the web and pulled it up. The gist of it was that when the church reaches out to the community on Easter, it usually does so in a way that is terribly insensitive to the dreams and feelings of the unchurched and, here's a new term, the de-churched. The author suggests that, quote, people will come into the kingdom naturally when we engage with them in something called dream conversations and, listen to this, incarnational listening. He says we need to be careful not to destroy people's trust by having an agenda. That is, an agenda other than the discovery and the release of a God-given dream, end quote. He continues, quote, If you delight in people's heartfelt dreams, impart that delight to others, create incubators of dreams, and through conversations of earned trust, introduce others to the dream giver, that would be God, the dream giver will fulfill yours. I was sharing this with the staff. I gave a copy to um, Brent and uh, told him what it was about. And he kind of glanced through it and he says, what about sin? I said, we won't find any mention of that in there. You won't find any mention of sin. Listen, if there's no mention of sin, then there's no capacity to share the gospel. 
Because the gospel is all about dealing with the real issue, which isn't broken dreams. It's a broken heart. A heart that's broken because of the devastation of sin. And as I reviewed the article, I realized that while the author was careful to state the latest statistics, full of statistics, and adept at communicating the lyrist's theory with compelling eloquence, there was not a single verse of Scripture anywhere. Not even a reference to the Bible that I could find. And this is given out to pastors. And you know why it's given out to pastors? Because pastors love this stuff. All over the place. Looking for the latest gimmick. Looking for the newest theory. Looking for the newest strategy. What about simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ? What about read your Bible and pray and serve and fellowship in unity? That's old. That doesn't work anymore. Well, perhaps it doesn't work anymore. But if it doesn't work anymore on a large scale, then we can see people that in the article kept talking about exponential growth in your church. You know, if, if proclaiming the gospel isn't producing exponential growth in your church, guess what? The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with those who are hearing the gospel and who are unable, unwilling to receive it. As God told Ezekiel, you go and take my word to these stubborn people. And by the way, they will not hear you. Their heads are going to be hard. I will make yours harder. You preach anyway. It doesn't matter. Preach the word. You continually get the gospel out. But I'll be rejected. So was Christ. But I'll be maligned. So was Christ. But I'll be shamed. Join the shame of the cross. And let God worry about the response. That's what suffering with Christ is about. We think the church is all about becoming big. We think the church is all about running like a business and having profit and having growth experts tell us how to get above this, the 200 ceiling and all of that stuff. You know, we just need to be faithful with the basics. And it all starts with truth. And it starts in your heart, moves into your home, and it affects your church. This is how pastors are building, building their churches. It's how men and women are building their marriages and their families. And one day when the wind blows and the rain falls, the whole thing is going to come crashing down because they foolishly chose to build on the sand of popular opinion and their own intuition rather than the unshakable rock of the Word of God. And that's why whenever someone comes to me for counsel, the first thing I ask is, how's your time in the Word been? How's your relationship with God right now? You spending time in the book you fellowshipping with the Lord in prayer? I mean, that's where we need to start. Do you even know him? Forget about technique. Forget about the strategy. Forget about law and lists. You never find in the New Testament God, through the apostles, calling us to be good list keepers, good law keepers. We are to be Christ lovers. And out of that comes all the righteousness. And so the first ingredient in this relational bond that Paul calls peace is truth. Saturate your soul with the truth. Be in the Word every day. That's why, you know, I think our men's and women's ministry here is so effective. 
I tell you, we've been doing this for seven, this is our seventh uh, session of doing this, seventh study. And this time it was overwhelming when we started back up. It was like everyone had been crawling across, not everyone, but a, a number of people felt like they'd been just crawling across a desert because uh, they'd been without that kind of fellowship for weeks. And when they came back, it was like coming to an oasis. Oh, I need the, the accountability. I need the fellowship. I need the mutual prayer. I need, and we're like, yeah, we need what the Bible says, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, breaking bread together, fellowshipping under the apostles' teaching. It's not real complicated. All we have to do is do it. It's amazing what happens. And so that's ingredient number one. Ingredient number two, humility. Verse 2 says, with all humility. Humility is one of the cardinal virtues of the Christian life. It's something that all of us need and none of us can claim. For once it's claimed, it's immediately lost. Are you humble? Yeah, no, not anymore. The world loves pride. The world thrives on self-assertion, self-esteem, self-actualization. It's said, I read this this week, it's been said that back in Paul's day, neither the Greeks nor the Romans even had a word for humility. It's entirely likely that Paul coined the Greek word here for humility. To be humble to the Greeks and Romans was to be weak, cowardly, effeminate. And so it may very well be that Paul produced this word on his own. And he did that from time to time because he needed a way to communicate these spiritual truths that were so counterculture. So what is humility? Or better yet, what is the difference between humility and pride? Well, if pride consists of actions and attitudes that make much of self, humility is just the opposite. But what is the opposite? Self-deprecation? Self-abasement? What is the opposite of self-exaltation, self-assertion, self-actualization? Well, let me suggest to you that a person who speaks lowly of himself can be just as proud as one who speaks highly of himself. There are two different kinds of pride. As one author writes, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I'm suffering so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong, and self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The need self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness. The need that self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. You see, the opposite of pride is not to deprecate yourself. The opposite of pride is not to deprecate yourself. The opposite of pride is to exalt Christ. And so if someone were to come to you and ask, are you humble? You can't say yes, because then you're not. 
But if someone comes to you and asks, are you a humble person? What should your answer be? Let me suggest one. Are you humble? Answer, Christ is all. There are no mirrors in heaven. When you land at the pearly gates and you are given entrance, you won't find any way to look or to think or to talk about yourself. And so if someone comes to you in heaven and says, are you a humble person? Your answer will be something like, Christ is all. Christ is everything. I'm not even part of this equation. I don't even fully understand why I'm here. He did it all. He is all. As Colossians says, Christ is your all in all. That's the opposite of proud. Being proud. And part of the reason there is such a lack of unity both in the homes and in the churches, especially in America, is because our eyes are entirely too focused on self. We care too much about what I want or what I need or how badly I've been treated and how nobody else knows my pain. And when we don't achieve the kind of response that we think is best or the one that we think we deserve, we assert our will against the other person and unity begins to crack. Last week we talked about identifying habit patterns in our lives relative to communication, thoughts, and actions. Here's one that many of us need to work on. Many of us. We think far too much of ourselves. We think far too much about ourselves. We talk too much about ourselves. We act far too often in a way that promotes our own agenda. We should be looking, thinking, acting, and speaking. Rather, about what? The glory of Christ. That's why Peter said, the goal of the church, the reason that you are a holy priesthood, a redeemed people, holy unto God, is so that you will declare the excellencies or you will proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Behind every conflict, there's a root of pride. Behind every act of reconciliation is Christ-exalting humility. I am nothing. Christ is everything. It's not just humility. Paul says, with all humility. All humility. That means all kinds of humility in every situation. In other words, no matter what happens, we are always trying to exalt, not self, but Christ What do you mean all humility? What does your circumstance right now require? That's the kind of humility. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit, this fruit of the Spirit is all about this. And let me just take a a little Spirit-empowered buddy trail for just a second. You know, at the end of the fruit of the Spirit, you read these words, Against such there is no law. Ever wondered what that meant? I've always looked at that. I've never studied it in depth. I've always looked at that and thought, what does that mean? Something about about the Mosaic law? I don't know. Galatians is all about law. How we relate to the law. We're not supposed to be list keepers. What do you mean, Paul? Against such there is no law. And I've talked about this before. All of the fruit of the Spirit is relational. 
I mean, those are not the only fruits of the Spirit. They're, I mean, everything that is holy that comes out of your life is a fruit of the Spirit. But he's dealing with issues related to interpersonal relationships. That's why he says previously in chapter 5, the same chapter, that uh, uh, the whole law is summed up in one word. What is it? It's love your neighbor as yourself. That's a hint because he could have said love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he didn't. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes through the fruit of the flesh. All the things that tear apart our relationships, which is evil, bad in the church. Because God is exalting this unified thing. And we're working against it. But the fruit of the Spirit is loving each other, having joy in our fellowship together. It's peace, this kind of peace that we have together. And at the end, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such there is no law. What does that mean? Well, it means this. You're in a conflict with someone. Let's say you're doing church discipline. Let's say whatever it is, you're in conflict and you're confronting a brother or a sister about a sin or about a, a, a whatever. And you start working through it with them. You kind of lay out your case before them and they don't seem very responsive. What do you do? Well, if you're a woman, you call your girlfriend and say, what do I do? Or if you're a man... You just either make your own decision or you call your dad or you call your buddy at work. What do I do? You know, should I send them a card and say, I love you, brother. I'm praying for you. Don't, don't think. The response may very well be, don't do that. Don't do that. You know why? Because they may think that you're not very serious about this. They may, they may think that if you start acting kind to them, if you see them in church after this kind of conflict and you come up and shake their hand and just say, I love you, brother. I just want you to know I love you. Give them a hug. Treat them like there's nothing wrong. If you do that, it's going to cause confusion. And Paul's saying, where's that law? I want to know where that law is. You show me where it says, don't be gentle right now. Don't be gracious right now. That'll send the wrong signal. Where is it in the Bible that it says, don't show goodness, don't show joy with them, don't show self-control with them right now? Against these things, there is no law from God. There's never a time when you can look at a brother or sister and say, you know, right now it would be inappropriate for me to be gracious to them. It would be inappropriate for me to be gentle with them. Show me the law. Show me the law. It's that kind of thinking. It's that kind of law manufacturing that causes and, and enhances the fractures that happen in the church. It's evil. What kind of humility? All humility. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 5, the apostle writes, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, make this a dominant characteristic in your life because God loves it and he hates the opposite of it. He will reward you. He will reward you. Grace always wins. Grace always wins. Not always in the immediate, but in the end, grace always wins. Be gracious. Be humble toward one another. You want to know how to build unity in your home and in the church? Saturate your soul with the truth and live the truth before others in a humility that is worthy of that truth. Well, number three, gentleness. 
and I've already touched on it, but this is, this is important. The word for gentleness here means mild-spirited or self-controlled. It's the opposite of vindictiveness or vengeful. Jesus promised blessing upon people who weave this character quality into their lives. Matthew 5.5. 5. He says, blessed are the what? Meek. Same word. Same word. Gentle. Meek. It's not the idea of being spineless. It's not the idea of being kind of a, a milk toast do-gooder. No, the truly meek person knows how to keep himself under control for the sake of the other person. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of the body. They see something higher than getting their own agenda taken care of. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when he's talking about why are you... You're having lawsuits against each other. What are you thinking? Don't you understand what's at stake here in the unity of the body? Everything's at stake here. Quit suing one another. And how about this? He says, why not rather be wronged? What are you going to lose if you lose? You've still got Christ. He's everything. Not the idea of being spineless. It's like being like David, who demonstrated meekness. First Samuel 24, he had the opportunity to kill his enemy Saul in a cave. You remember that? Saul stopped to take a potty break when he was after David. He went into the wrong cave. And there was David and his men. And one of his men said, we got him. Let me go, David. He's mine. David said, Far be it from me that I should touch the Lord's anointed. No, we will control ourselves because there's something bigger at stake here than my conflict with him. The Lord's reputation is at stake. I dare not touch the one that God has appointed king. Vengeance belongs to him. Moses was described as very humble, more than any other man who ever walked the face of the earth, and yet he fearlessly confronted Pharaoh in the name of the Lord. Jesus was the personification of meekness. Come to me, all of you who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then you read in another passage where he grabs a whip. He walks into the temple and he starts beating people, getting them out of the temple. How dare you turn God's house of prayer into a den of robbers? Yet Jesus was the personification of weak, uh, meekness. Listen, just because a person is smarter than others or more talented than others or stronger than others or more gifted than others doesn't mean that he has to lord it over others. It doesn't mean that you always have to share what you're thinking or share what you're feeling or confront other people with what you believe to be is true. To the contrary, the greater the giftedness, the greater the need for self-control, the greater the need for meekness, the greater the need for gentleness. I tell you, there's nothing that can do more cause more harm and be more of a danger to the unity of the church or to the home like a really smart guy who uses his intellect or his theological prowess to have his own opinions and preferences prevail. Men, 
we all have to be really careful at home, do we not? Because if we're not careful, we can take this leadership thing to an extreme. And we can make everybody hate us for no good reason. Or we can get into the habit of lashing out in anger every time someone challenges our opinion. We think they're assaulting our manhood or taking on our leadership role. That's the opposite of meekness. And by the way, I've seen that in women, too, who've just so dominated their husbands that their husband didn't know what to do. A person who is angered by every nuisance or inconvenience to themselves knows nothing about gentleness. They know nothing about meekness. And his attitudes, thoughts, and actions will work to drive a wedge between people who should be experiencing the sweet fellowship of unity in Christ. And it's sin. It's sin. It's not just your little pet thing. It's not just, you know, I'm frustrated. No, that's not a biblical term. Show me frustrated in the Bible. What you are right now is you're angry, and it's inappropriate. It's sinful. Be angry, but don't sin. That's a hard line. You better be careful. Don't flip that around foolishly. You want to know how to preserve the unity of the Spirit in your home, in your marriage, in your church? Saturate your soul with the truth. Clothe yourselves with humility and treat others with gentleness. I don't know about you, but the gentleness one, we can't say, you know, I just don't have the gift of mercy. You ever played that game? It's a danger of knowing all the spiritual gifts. Well, I'm just not gifted in mercy. That's why I'm so abrasive to everyone. Well, the Lord knows. He's the one who didn't gift me with mercy. The Lord's fault, right? The fourth ingredient to a strong bond, the strong bond called peace. Number four, patience. King James uses a more descriptive English word here. It says, gentleness with long-suffering. That's patience. Long-suffering. The, the person who's patient can take quite a beating before he really is tempted to retaliate. You know, some people have trained themselves to seek revenge at the slightest infraction. You see this all the time in boys. If two boys are walking down the hall in the house and one of them catches the other one's shoulder by accident, the other one will turn around and whack the, you know, the first one in the head. And you train yourself to do this. I mean, it's just spontaneous. You don't, oh, you know, I didn't mean to hit him. You know, my hand just, you know, went up there and, and bam. And, uh. Unfortunately, this is pretty common in marriage as well. One party will make a hurtful comment and the other will come back with something even more hurtful. It's not patience. It's not something that's building the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Don't expect unity in that kind of home. You're not going to get it. And if you don't trade it into your children while they're young, forget it when they're teenagers. It's not going to happen. Not without a lot of heartache and pain. A person who is patient is one who trusts God even when the circumstances aren't going his way. Thomas Watson wrote, Patience is nothing else but faith spun out. If you would lengthen patience, be sure to strengthen faith. That's right. Patience is all about faith. Again, another author wrote, It is to... Uh, patience is uh, waiting with God in the unplanned place... And walking with God at the unplanned pace. I didn't plan this, Lord. Just, just stay with me. Lord, this light shouldn't have turned red on me, you know. Well, if you knew, 
why I wanted it to be red right now, you'd thank me. And I'm not going to tell you. Just, this is the unplanned pace. I've got you on it. Now settle down. Walk in faith. In other words, trust me. I know what I'm doing. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. That means the right path. This is the right path. And this is the right pace on the right path. Just follow me. Just trust me. When someone gets in your way, how do you respond? You get frustrated? You get mad? You start expounding all the reasons that they need to step aside for your sake? And for the Lord's, of course. A patient person is slow to anger. He's slow to retaliation. Because you know what? That's the way God is. Be imitators of God for Christ's sake. Be imitators of God. If you have a family or a church full of people exercising humility, gentleness, and patience as a result of being saturated in the truth, then you're well on your way to making a kind of peace that produces true unity. But there's one more ingredient to throw into the mix. Last one. Number five. We'll call it tolerant love. Tolerant love. Because here's what the Apostle Paul says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This is a tolerant love. Now, tolerance in the Bible is not the kind of tolerance that uh, the politically correct world has elevated to the highest virtue. The tolerance of the world says that your truth is on an equal level of acceptability and validity as my truth. No matter how mutually exclusive they may be. And so the abortionist has just as much credibility as the laborer and delivery nurse. Homosexuality is just as acceptable as monogamy. Or being straight, as they call it. That's not the kind of tolerance the Lord is pleading for. Believing there is no God is just as legitimate as believing there is a God. Praying to Satan is just as legitimate as praying to Jesus. And that's why we had um, a former mayor of Dallas invite a Satanist to come and lead the town meeting with prayer to Satan. And his explanation later was, uh, you know, we need, we need help from everybody we can get. And I just read this past week that the military is now allowing it as well. There is, I believe, if, if I have this right, there has been approved a, a coven of witches at, um, uh, it was one of, one of the military bases. I, I better not say I may get it wrong. But the military is now sanctioning it. Because of tolerance, this worldly view of tolerance, everybody's on the same plane. Nobody is more right than anybody else. That's not the biblical tolerance. The biblical idea of tolerance is forbearance. Forbearance. It's closely associated with the other characteristics already mentioned. And what Peter has in mind when he wrote, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 Paul says, Showing tolerance for one another in love. And so we might call this forbearing love. It's the idea of loving a, pa a person no matter 
what the amount of weight that that relationship may place on your back. I know Wayne Mack, whenever he comes to town to teach, and we go to, to his conferences here, he always tells us, gentlemen, never look at a person as a problem with two legs on it. You ever done that? Oh, my goodness, here he comes down the hall. Where can I duck? Here comes that problem with two legs on it. I'm going to hear 35 minutes of whatever. Don't be like that. Don't treat other people like that. You ever feel that way? Paul says, come on, be forbearing to one another. After all, that's how God relates to you. Imagine the burden that he has to carry being inextricably tied to the likes of us. Well, there's much more that could be said about each one of these characteristics, but mainly we need to understand that the unity in the body is not a secondary issue with God. Preserving it is not easy, but it is necessary not only for the glory of God, but for our own joy. Well, now I've exhorted you. Let me encourage you. People all the time come and visit Calvary Bible Church, and they say there's something unusual here. There's something different about that church. You walk in and you find people who love you. They don't even know your name. There's a peace here. There's a unity here. And there's been unity here for at least five years. Praise the Lord for that. You know what? You can't have that kind of unity without these things going on in the church. And it's happening. And it's been happening. You all are devoted to the Word. That's why I love to preach here. You all are devoted to pursuing this kind of peace that makes unity. You're, you are devoted to battling against pride, pursuing gentleness, pursuing all five of these disciplines in your life. And that's why the unity of the Spirit here is pretty high. Pretty high. The Calvary Bible Church, East, we're not struggling with a lot of conflict. In fact, I don't know of any that the elders have to be involved in. I'm not sure I know of any. I praise the Lord for that. That is something God is doing in this place. And I don't care if we never break the 200 window. What is that anyway? This is a unified body. This is people taking care of people. This is people loving one another and confessing sin to one another, and being quick to forgive, slow to chide, and quick to bless, just like God is. And yeah, once in a while there's a blip on the screen. But praise God. We live by repentance and faith. None of us are perfect. This church is not perfect. But our Lord is. And He will not finish His work until it is completed in Christ. And that's his promise, Philippians 1.6, and we can count on it. Well, my time is almost gone. Let's pray.